So can any of you remember um, in your younger days uh, thinking you could not wait for the day when you got to make all your own decisions? (laughs) I I can, and I also uh, know those thoughts were strongest when I was not allowed to do something that I very much wanted to do. And at times like that, I longed for the emancipation I imagined would come with age. And that really is part of life's progression, I think. Uh, we start out uh, life not even knowing that decisions affecting us are being made, uh, whether it involved the food that we were fed or the clothes which uh, were put on us or where and when we were put down for our nap. The most we could do in those days back in that time was to show our displeasure. And we got a little bit older and a little more aware, and yet we really weren't thinking in terms of choices. Life was going on around us. And, and we were pretty content to let it happen. And still other people, usually parents, were, uh, were really in charge and they were calling all the shots. Our part was still that of a veto, expressing our disapproval about things. But there comes a day, uh, and really it comes fairly early age, uh, when we express our desire for something other than what we see coming our way. It's a time when we're not merely expressing our dislike for whatever it is that is coming to us. We might even like it, uh, that thing that's being offered to us, but just not now. Now we want something else. And uh, we're trying to choose between two or more options. And while we're still young, we, we still don't have much to say about those choices, but the progression has begun. It started, which will continue throughout our young lives. And so in the best-case scenario, we're given more and more freedom to choose as we demonstrate increasing maturity, and, le- and everyone's happy. <laughs> Well, typically life doesn't go quite that way. Usually there's uh, more turmoil and greater on some days and over some items than others. But the process does continue until we arrive at that fabled age of majority when we finally get to do what we wanted, got what we wanted for so long, we get to make all of our own decisions. Now, for those of you here who are here this morning who are, oh, I don't know, let's just say under the age of 25, or give or take a little bit, I have a little bit of bad news for you, which most of the rest of us have already discovered. And that is that that progression, which began in infancy, has not quite reached its conclusion once you've reached that age of majority and your emancipation from home rule. For most of us, the day comes when... The choices we make are not just about what we most want to do that day or that hour, but rather they have consequences that go on maybe for years, and they affect the lives and hopes and dreams of other people, and sometimes deeply so. And unless we're completely self-absorbed, that matters deeply to us. We discovered just how weighty life may be and how difficult Sometimes it is to make decisions and to choose the right path. And many times we find ourselves looking back wistfully (laughs) to those days when we didn't have to make such choices. There's no going back, however, at least not in any healthy way. We have reached this age of majority uh, and emancipation, and so we have to move forward if we're to live up to our potential, if we're to have a satisfying life. 
And there really are a couple of steps that can still be taken in that progression, which began with our infancy. And not everyone takes them, of course. And some people won't take all of them, but they're where waiting. So usually what we do at first, when we find ourselves facing one of those difficult places in life, we have to make a choice as we, we choose the best thing we know to choose based on what we already know. And our best choice often doesn't turn out so good. And so we learn to do a little research, right? And so we look a little more deeply into the matter, but still we're relying on our own smarts. And, and as it turns out, even if we are reasonably intelligent, we discover we aren't quite as smart as we thought and things don't always go as planned. And it's at that point that if we continue maturing, we begin to look for advice from other people. Not usually our parents at first, uh, but later on, we generally discover mom and dad were quite a bit smarter than we may have uh, given them credit for. And likely the day will come when you only wish you had a chance to talk with them. In any case, we've learned that we can get wisdom from other people, and not just from anyone, of course. I mean, we don't usually ask our mechanic for investment advice or our banker about the the odd-shaped mole on our leg. We look to people who are wise and knowledgeable in their fields, and we don't even always have to talk to them. I I mean, just seeing and knowing what they're doing is often enough for us to know what we ought to do. So as we mature, we we come to those difficult decisions, and and we learn to make them by using all of our native intelligence and by investigating the matter and also by seeking advice. And that's as good as far as it goes, but there's a little further that we can go in this progression that we've been talking about. You see, we can pray about the choices we need to make. And it would be good if we learned to do that early in life. And and some people who have grown up in the faith and have had godly examples may have a leg up on the rest of us who didn't come to faith until later in life. But even here, even in prayer, there's some room for growth. You see, most people, they know they need to pray, right? And so they pray, and then they make the best decision they know how. When what they ought to be doing is praying and asking God, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And then waiting for his answer. And the waiting really is the hard part. Now sometimes, uh, just to kind of round out this thought, we get to a place in our praying where we say something like, you know, Lord, I want to know your will, but I have to make this decision by such and such a time, and since I haven't heard from you, this seems the best thing for me to do. This is what I'm going to do, unless you close the door. And if you do that in humility and with a desire to debate, Uh, to obey, you have, I believe, done all that you could do in such a situation. I want you to know something about prayer. Prayer, at times like that, we really could say it's our attempt to know what heaven already knows. And knowing what heaven knows can really be helpful. I mean, it can encourage us, it can give us hope, it can help us to make right choices. 
And knowing the things heaven knows is, is really knowing what reality is. Even when circumstances surrounding our lives obscure them, and we can learn what this thing, which we call life, is leading up to and what the end of all things will be. And any, any right-thinking person would want to know that if they could. It wouldn't necessarily make life any easier because we knew it, and it wouldn't mean that we wouldn't have any more problems. Because, in fact, one could even imagine knowing such things that could cause more problems because you're responsible for what you know. But if you knew what heaven knew, you'd have the opportunity to live truly. And when all else is said and done, you would find yourself on the right side of eternity. So the book of Revelation is, is God's way of revealing to us the things that heaven knows, at least some of those things, and, and as much as we're now capable of knowing. And the whole Bible, of course, it's God's word and it reveals truth to us. It tells us the things which heaven knows. But Revelation is the longest writing dealing with the end-time events. And it brings together much of what else is scattered throughout the uh, scriptures. And, and, and it discloses things to us not previously known. It reveals to a great degree the glory of Christ and, and the meaning of his return and the majesty of the Godhead. The book of Revelation says about itself, blessings come to those who read and hear it and take it to heart. And so, with those thoughts in mind, I want to invite you to join me once again in the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where, uh, as we've been making our way through it, we uh, have come to chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Again, we're going to cover a large portion of Scripture today. We're going to do the whole chapter. But really, it does all hang together as a unit, and that allows us to cover a lot of territory. I want to summarize this chapter for you in three sentences. <clears throat> There's more to say about these chapters than these, what these three sentences can say, and yet I think they really provide a kind of a broad outline and can help us to know what, some of what heaven knows. The three sentences are this. God is God, and he's worthy. Those on the outside are encouraged to come to him, and soon Jesus will come in victory from heaven. I want to repeat this to you. God is God and he's worthy. Those on the outside encouraged to come to him and soon Jesus will come in victory from heaven. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19 we read after this, meaning after what we had seen in chapter 18 which dealt with the destruction of Babylon which happens at the very end of the end times. After this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, salvation, glory and power belong to our God. You see heaven itself rejoices in God. And that word hallelujah is a common word. We read it all the time in the Bible. And it is both an expression and an invitation to praise God. And we're called to praise God because he is 
great. He is worthy. And then we're told three things that help uh, that belong to God that help us understand that why he's great and why he's worthy and why he ought to be praised. First, we ought to praise God because of salvation. The text tells us it belongs to him. It cannot come from anyone else. There is no other place where we can find it. We cannot earn it for ourselves. There is no other power in the universe or in any possible universe which can save us if God does not. But he does. He provides salvation. He saves us. He, he provided for our salvation by sending his son to die on that cross. And anyone who puts their faith in Christ and his trusting work on that cross is saved. And he or she belongs to God's family forever. And so we ought to praise God because salvation belongs to him and he offers it to us. And then we ought to praise him because uh, glory belongs to him. And this is really more than just the fact that we ought to praise him. You see, God is glorious even if no one were to recognize it. And and, and dictionaries define that word glory any number of different ways. But I think uh, in our hearts, we know that what it really means is it's the highest, most beautiful, most amazing, most wonderful existence or life, which is God. And God shares that with us. He gives himself to us. And so we praise him because he is great and because he's glorious. And power belongs to him. You know, there are many mighty things in our world and in our universe, but God's the source of them all. Theologically, we say that God is an omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do. And he spoke the worlds into existence. And all praise belongs to him, for he always and only ever uses his power for good. See, not only is God great, to whom belongs salvation and power and glory, Not only is that so, not only should we praise him because of that, heaven itself recognizes that. And when we look into heaven, we see that very thing. But his judgment is also great, and that brings him praise too. So verse 2 and following, we read this, For true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged her blood on her, the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You see, when God judges, his judgments are always true. They're always just. God's judgments are great, and they bring him praise. Now, we're not going to spend a whole much time here on this. Um, We've already talked about it before, but it is a theme throughout the Bible which tells us when God judges all which is good, every person who is good, every being which is good rejoices because justice is always served when God judges. And so we ought to praise God because that's what heaven is doing. We ought to praise him because he's great. And when he executes judgments, it's good. And because the greatest beings in heaven also worship him. Verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen and Hallelujah. You know, the greatest of all created heavenly beings, the 24 elders and the 
four living creatures knew enough to worship God and they cry amen in full agreement and they cry hallelujah worshiping and praising him for before him they would admit to being nothing which is just what they do when they fall down before him and we see here in this picture in heaven what heaven itself is doing and we ought to do likewise to praise God because he's great and when he executes justice it's good and the greatest beings in heaven worship him and yet as great as those creatures are and they are great indeed as a matter of fact if you and I were to see them in our present state we would be tempted to fall down and worship them and yet for all their greatness they do not stand closer to God than the redeemed do we are still nearer than God than they are so the redeemed of God who are in heaven also praise him and it's the Savior who invites them to do so. Verse 5, it says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both great and small. The voice we hear there comes from the throne. It is, though, the voice of God. Jesus, as a God-man, calls his Father his God. And he calls his brothers and sisters, that's us, to worship him. Praise our God, he says, inviting all the redeemed to worship, all you, his servants, he says, all who fear him, the great and small alike. And they respond, first praising him for his rule in verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. The multitude of the redeemed already in heaven. Shout out the glory of God, for he rules the world in power and might, and they invite us to do the same. The reason for their praise is God has, is reigning. You know, he always has ruled our world, but in a limited way, allowing free will to work according to his plan, but allowing it to work. But now, in this place in the Scripture pointing to a time that is yet to come in the last of the last days he has begun to exert his complete authority on the earth and the redeemed declare him to be the Lord referring to that Old Testament name Yahweh the great I am the only self-existent and eternal being and they call him God asserting him to be supreme and he is almighty Again, pointing to his supremacy and his complete power over all he has made. They praise God for ruling the universe. And they also rejoice in the fact that they will dwell with Jesus forever. And they invite us to do the same, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has been made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So you and I, the church of the living God, are we are the bride of Christ. We're given the righteousness of God, but we wear it. We put that righteousness into practice, preparing ourselves for the coming day when we will see Christ face to face and be with him forever 
I think Paul helps our understanding in this when he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. Or as John says, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in themselves purify themselves, even as he is pure. See, the church is the bride, and, and, and that church, that's us, has purified ourselves by doing the works that God has called us to do. And God will unite us to his Son. And, and what God joins together in that place and time will never be separated. See, we ought to praise God because all of heaven does. And they do so because he's great. And, and when he executes judgments, it's good. And, and the greatest beings in heaven worship him. And then the redeemed already in heaven, they praise God for his reign, knowing he will rule in absolute power and goodness forever and ever. And because they will never be separated from him, they will always be united to their Savior. That's what heaven knows. And that's what we know when we look at this passage. And it can make a difference in the way we live our lives. Do you remember that that old commercial where there are two people talking and they're in a crowded place. Sometimes they're in a restaurant. Maybe the other times they're in a train station or, or something like that. And there's all this background noises is going on all around them. And people are talking and they're moving around. Maybe waiters are serving food. And then one person leans over to the other and he says... My broker is E.F. Hutton, and he says, and everybody in the place gets quiet and they're looking right there. You see, that commercial wants you to think that that man, that E.F. Hutton, those brokers knew something. But I can tell you, the glimpse into heaven shows us some of what heaven knows, and, and that is worth more to us than anything that this world has to offer. God is great, and he's worthy. And then the text turns to those who are on the outside, to those who are yet on the wrong side of eternity, and they're encouraged to come to him. That's the next section in this, uh, in this chapter, and, and it, it's found in verses 9 and 10. Heaven says to any who will listen to those on the outside, take God at his word and be blessed. So verse 9 we read, Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he added, these are the true words of God. See, John is instructed to write down this statement, to record it, to record it for everyone, for all posterity. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Those who are blessed are those who are invited. And, and normally, many of us think of that invitation as going out to everyone everywhere, that are all are invited, right? And I believe everyone at one time did have such an invitation. But now in this text here, we're, we're, again, we're in the last days. And remember, when we get to this place, there are three groups of people, right? So there's the group of people who are sold out to evil and, and, and they've received the mark of the beast. And they wouldn't come back to God even if there was a way to return. And of course there are people like that that exist in our own day and time even if we don't recognize them. And whatever invitation they may have been offered is no longer offered. And then there is uh, 
those who have already received the invitation, right? They have that invitation in their hands, so to speak. That's people like us who have put their faith in Christ. They're redeemed, both those who are in heaven and those who are still upon the earth. And the remaining group are those people who are still have that offer. They haven't taken it yet. They have that offer, and they're blessed because they have it. And they could turn from that blessing, and the invitation would be rejected. And the angel added something. He said, these are the true words of God. And this addition was to be recorded too. You see, all of God's words, of course, are true. So, so this is added because it's a kind of a guarantee. You see, we could really imagine someone thinking something like, what? What, would, what would God want with someone like me? But we could encourage them. We could tell them. We could tell them that God's word is reliable, that it's true, and that these particular words which are highlighted are words that God wants people to know. In other words, God guarantees that any of those who are on the outside, if they come to Christ, they will be forever blessed, and those who are on the outside are invited to come in. Now, along with that invitation, there's also a warning that comes. And the warning is that we should worship God and God only. And so we see that in verse 10. At this, uh, at this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So God and God only is worthy of worship. And everyone, even the redeemed, needs to be reminded of that. For even John here was... Uh, tempted to worship something that was less than God. And yet I think that's just the point. If a good man like John, one who's in the Spirit and who's receiving this vision, if he's tempted to worship another being, and in this case a good being, right? I mean, for the angel that's talking to him here, it's the same one from chapter 18 who had that great authority and illuminated the whole earth. But John's forbidden to do that by the angel himself then those in this book here who are worshiping the Antichrist are committing a grave sin. And those who are forcing others to worship him are committing even a greater transgression. So, so those who still have that invitation waiting for them are warned to worship God and only God or risk losing it all. The same danger faces people today. They're in danger of worshiping or giving themselves to someone or something that is not God. In the last days, everything's heightened. But all that same stuff is going on in our day, just typically at a slower pace. So for those on the outside, if they'll take God and his word and come to him, they'll be blessed. And they're also warned to worship warned to worship God and only God. And then finally, those on the outside are assured, if anything is pointing them to Jesus... It's God's Spirit who's behind it. So at the end of verse 10, we read, For it is the Spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Now, some of you may have another translation, such as the NAS. It says, For the testimony in Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. The NIV is simply trying to make it clear, prophecy, to those on the outside, the speaking forth of the God's Word always points people to Jesus. And the Spirit of God is behind that kind of prophecy. So we, we can say to those who we witness to, we can say something like this. If you have any thought 
about God. If you feel any calling or drawing of yourself to him, any at all, then it comes from God. See, without God's work in our life, we would never even give him a thought, at least not a good thought. See, if you have any feeling or desire or inclination or thought that you should go to him, it's because he is still there calling you. He's still inviting you. And you still may be blessed, but you can turn from him and you can lose it all. So those on the outside are encouraged to take God at his word and be blessed and to worship God and only God and to know God's spirit is pointing them to Jesus who is the only way. And this also reminds us that we who have already received that invitation, we need to be telling others about Jesus, right? That's what heaven does. So God is God and he's worthy. Heaven praises him because he's great. And the redeemed already in heaven, uh, who are already in heaven praise God for his rule and power and goodness and because they'll always be with him. And those on the outside are encouraged to take God at his word and to worship God and only him and to know God's spirits pointing to them to Jesus. And that's what heaven knows. And finally, soon, Jesus will come in victory from heaven. Which brings us really to the last section of this passage, which we are going to allow to speak for itself with little comment from me. I think it's one of the most majestic and moving passages in all of literature. It points to the end of the end times when Christ will be revealed in glory and power. Verse 11 and following. Let me read it for you. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter he treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robes and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords you know I can hardly imagine a believer reading or hearing this without being moved in heart to worship God so I, I know we're all sinners, and sometimes the word of scriptures uh, roll over us without us even noticing. And they pass through our minds while we're walking in our imaginations or in some distraction in our hearts or, or in other places. But when you really hear those words, they ought to move you deeply. And these words especially, as they turn our eyes to the glory that's yet to come. Now I really do want to come back to to this and finish with it but, but for the sake of closure and to round out this chapter we need to see how it ends you, you see we're being told here that Christ is going to go to war so verses 17 and follow, uh, following tell us the end of it we read and I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings generals and the mighty 
of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Listen, this is Old Testament poetic language, which simply means that there's going to be a great battle and there's going to be a slaughter. And that battle is going to be between the forces of good and evil, between the Christ and the Antichrist. And we learn that from verse 19. Then I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the kings of their earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Now, it's going to prove to be a futile attempt, but they're full of hatred, and they refuse to repent. They have nowhere else to go, and so they, Antichrist and all of his cohorts go out to war. And verses 20 and 21 tell us the end of the matter. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs uh, on its behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The Antichrist and his followers had given themselves to evil, and they reap the fruit of their ways. So in this passage, we're told Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He's the one who was slain for the sins of the world, but he is the one who leads the armies of heaven. And of that time, we're told in verse 11, both that he is faithful and true, and with justice he judges and wages war. The one who is faithful and true, he's also just. And he is just in all he does. He's just when he judges, and he's just when he wages war. The very justness of his being means he will judge with true judgment, which uh, is a matter of rejoicing for the righteous, but he will also wage war, for evil has to be confronted when all hope of redemption is passed. And when we come to verse 12, we're reminded of something we read about in chapter 1 of the book. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head on his head are many crowns. He sees everything, and he sees it clearly and correctly. And the many crowns reveal the extent of his authority. He's a king of everyone and everything. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. You know, months ago we talked about the white stone that's given to the believers on and the name's written on that and only the one who receives that stone knows the name and it and each person is unique and and no one could know that name no one could fulfill that name not not like the one to whom it's given and and right here we're being told this is another way of describing the absolute uniqueness of jesus christ no one but jesus can fulfill that name no one can even know or approach that name but him and he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Reminds of his death for our salvation. This isn't about his prowess of being a warrior, although he's going to war and none are going to be able to withstand him. The robe is already dipped in blood before he goes. He has known death. And the death he's known is his own. He died for the sins of the world. And he is the word of God. That's who Jesus is. It is who he has always been. It's another name, one of his names, more primitive or maybe more central would be the better way to say it. It's like the idea of the Son of God. He is eternal both in the past and in the future. Well, that term Son of Man is only everlasting. It only started from the time 
of the incarnation. But Jesus is the word of God and always has been. John refers to him in his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. A name that no other being could fulfill or even come close to. And the armies of verse 14 follow Jesus. He's our leader. He's our king. He leads the battle. He doesn't direct it from behind or behind the lines. He leads us. And, and we're on his side. You know, in the Old Testament one time, uh, Joshua asked the commander of the Lord's host, this angel that appeared to him, if he was on his side. And the angel said he wasn't on his side or the enemy's side. He was on God's side. But he was going to give Joshua the victory. But now something different has happened. You see, we are on God's side. And the redeemed will ride to him in battle. Verse 15 recalls again something from the verse that we were told. That sharp sword coming out of his mouth. That from chapter 1, it's a picture of the power of God's word. And then the Old Testament is quoted to remind us Jesus will rule them with an iron scepter. His rule will be absolute and harsh only to the wicked when he executes judgment on them. He treads the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. And we've seen that idea before. The deeds of the wicked are harvested and placed in the winepress and the resultant wine is their just deserts of the wicked and the one who treads it is Jesus the executor of God's wrath. And finally, in verse 16, we're told Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His title is exalted above all others. The Lamb died for our sins. He was buried, but he was raised again, and he will return as the conqueror. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was the white horse, whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire in his head. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but himself knows. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. God is God and he's worthy. Those on the outside are encouraged to come to him. And soon... Maybe before you know it, he will come again in victory from heaven. Never mind. Never mind being on the right side of history as it now stands. For history as we measure it changes positions. Sometimes so quickly it makes our heads spin. And it's subject to those who write it. But in this chapter, we're given a glimpse of what heaven knows. And if we take to heart the things we see there, we will find ourselves on the right side of eternity. And we can help others get there. 
Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you once again for your goodness to us, and thank you that um, that you uh, have a plan and that you're working that out. And Lord, you haven't left it to be a surprise to us. You have given us so much information. You've told us so much of what is coming and what will happen. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to be faithful and to live in a way that's pleasing to you and that makes a difference to those who still need you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.